Dear friends, welcome to another episode of Scraps, a podcast where we talk to some of the most brilliant minds and explore their stories that led to moments of brilliance behind science and innovation. In case you haven't done it already, please support us by subscribing to our podcast, leaving a review if you haven't already done so. In addition, you can reach Jojo and I directly for our feedback and our contact details are on the website, scrapsofbrilliance.com. Today, we're welcoming a good friend and a brilliant scientist. I will say this knowing a few good engineers in my life across industry and academia. Engineers always seem to have this thing about being called as engineers, and they're very specific about it and not as scientists. But our guest today has gone from working on flexible neural tissue sensors to synthetic biology to now being on the most widely quoted people in the field of enabling technologies for neuromorphic computing. If the hype is to be believed, we think that this will lead to a transformative work in this area by him and his lab members to bringing biology and technology together to spawn a whole new area of real-time artificial intelligence and machine learning. Let's hear it from the man himself, Themis Prodromakis. Welcome to the show, Themis. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Jojo. It's really great to be with you today. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, thanks for joining us. So Arun obviously has high praise for you in his his introduction, and I'm curious, um, as being the non-engineer, non-scientist part of our team here, if you could sort of give us an overview of what it is that you do in your lab, if you're, especially if you're not prone to being um, stereotyped as an engineer, can you describe for us what it is that you do in, in simplistic terms, relatively speaking? Sure. So the, the way I put it to my kids is I, I, I like to, to build small things. So when I, when I say small things, uh, uh, in the nanoscale, which is essentially uh, using a few atoms to develop devices, to develop systems, to develop, uh, it, it doesn't really matter actually what we are developing in the end of the day. It's uh, what really defines me as an engineer is that I'm using the same tool sets to, to build small things. So um, um, Aaron was very, very uh, kind in his introduction to say a few things that I've done in the past, ranging from uh, from biosensors to uh, artificial intelligence systems to uh, tests for cell culturing and drug toxicity systems, uh, uh, monitors for drug toxicity. So all of these have actually utilized exactly the same tool sets, tool sets that really allow us to develop at the, at the nanoscale for, for those that are listening, uh, one nanometer is essentially a billionth of a meter. So about eight to 10 atoms wide. So, and what are some of the applications of, of your work? Where are they being used and, and how are they being implemented? Uh, I've thought long and hard about uh, describing what I do uh, in uh, across a number of different people. Uh, the best way that I could uh, sort of explain this is that my vision is to use these tools and use nanotechnologies to, first of all, uh, learn from biology, link biological functions to engineering systems. Uh, and, and that would be the case with biosensing systems that we do with neural interfacing, uh, advanced neural interfacing systems, but also study biology 
and learn from biology and, and learn lessons that we can actually go back into engineering systems and apply those lessons. Uh, and that's kind of the, the new emerging areas of uh, neuromorphic computing or revamped, if you like, because there has always been an interest in mimicking biology. But now we are developing uh, technologies that uh, uh, depend on functional materials, for example, that are able to allow us to very realistically or biorealistically emulate biology. And, uh, and I think that's why we see these uh, really impressive um, uh, development in artificial intelligence and hardware for artificial intelligence nowadays which renders some amazing capabilities, obviously, for modern societies. So making, you know, obviously our, our lifestyles easier uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, everything a lot more manageable uh, if it comes, you know, like from anything from going to the supermarket, ordering stuff via Siri or, uh, or even, you know, like for medical interventions. So I... I I think you're the actually the perfect person for me to ask this question of. I've heard both sides of the argument and the opinions tend to be very strong in both camps. It's about the human body sort of being the perfect machine and that a lot of our computing principles are based upon things that are also found in biology or the other way around. Do you have a, a stance on that? Uh, actually, no, no one is right. So I don't want to take, uh, to, you know, to sort of uh, sit in one camp or the other. Because if you think about uh, von Neumann computing, you know, like uh, standard digital computers that we're using in everyday life so far, you know, uh, they are fantastic in doing uh, uh, some standard things that we routinely do, you know, like a number crunching. If I was to ask you, you know, what's the square root of uh, a billion something, you know, you, you would really struggle to tell, right? But, but a computer does that uh, automatically, does it, you know, like really, really quickly and provides you a fantastic response. Uh, if I was to ask a, a, a computer on the other side to, uh, to, to, to drive in an autonomous fashion, you know, like a, a car, uh, it's going to be really, really difficult. It's going to have a really, really difficult time to do that. And it would require a huge amount of resources or recognizing uh, syllabus in, in natural language processing that we routinely perform nowadays, you know, with Siri, as an example, on our iPhones. Uh, and, uh, and the reason for that is because uh, the, the human brain does not continuously calculate the velocity that we're traveling and uh, how much we're putting our foot on on the brakes and and on the acceleration, uh, it, it doesn't do that continuously in that way. And is using analog computing and is using a highly parallel processing uh, capability that allows us to really do that by leveraging very very primitive components, uh, neurons and synapses, which by the way are extremely unreliable. So on one side you have something that's uh, intrinsically highly unreliable but highly parallel and it gives you all this multi-parallelism in real time on the other side you have if you look at the latest sort of smartphones they you have something in the order of seven billion transistors in in, in a microprocessor uh, and uh, if you have a couple of those transistors not functioning in the nanoscale uh, you are in serious trouble uh, and they are extremely fast 
yet they're not able to match the same capability. Notwithstanding to compare also the capabilities they can deliver in terms of processing and how much power is needed. On one side, on a computer, you would actually need, you know, uh, kilowatts of power, for example. On the other side, you might need uh, only 20 watts or 30 watts. Uh, that's how much the human brain consumes. So it's it's always a nice trick question that I'm actually using uh, when I do science outreach to uh, primary school uh, kids, and uh, and I and I ask them, you know, who do you think is going to actually win for this certain, you know, a, a supercomputer or a human brain? And you would you would get massive arguments and the two camps. So uh, its system has actually evolved and has been de developed in uh, for for tackling very very specific tasks. I think that is a that is one of the big reasons why we actually wanted to have you on on the podcast here Themis because you have you're one of the very few people that we know of who has built tools to understand biology and also uses inspiration from biology to go back and and build circuitry etc in engineering and i think the field that you're working in is is kind of uh, ripe for doing that and we will go to go into the details of every single uh, system that you work on but let's kind of talk about Temis as to how he ended up to where he is today uh, and what has been your journey since when you were in school what what got you into the field that you're in or where you where you're a bit of a late bloomer in terms of your interest for science and engineering uh, tell us a bit more about that uh, i'm i'm an engineer that really enjoys his day day work so i'm i'm really curiosity driven uh, i had plenty of really exciting opportunities and i'm really thankful to people who've mentored me throughout the the many years to join industry or, or to uh to, to change a career pathway, but I, I, I really love what I'm doing. My day life is, 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 is just amazing, you know, engaging with all these researchers and, and uh, uh, going into the office uh, and not knowing what exactly we're going to deal with uh, and what sort of questions we're going to, to start unpicking and, and developing. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating. So I always tell my, my students uh, that whenever you you come across a challenge, you actually come across an opportunity because a lot of people will actually give up. And, uh, and the more you keep pushing towards that, uh, uh, towards addressing, you know, like this challenge, uh, it's almost certain that you would actually come across something, something new. The other thing that really guided me throughout the years, I've mentioned, you know, like my mentors, and I, I was really lucky to be uh, affiliated and, and part of groups of uh, some fantastic engineers who, who were not the, the type of conventional engineers, if, if I'm allowed to say so. They were highly interdisciplinary in the, in the approach that they were taking. Uh, and, and that was uh, really inspiring for me because um, uh, I, I do believe, strongly do believe that innovation occurs at the cross-sections of different disciplines in, in, in very easy ways without actually you realizing. Uh, from doing simple things, I can tell you how I actually started developing uh, cell culturing platforms. And it's an area that we've, we've also worked together in, and that's how we met actually, Aaron. Uh, so if I, if I was to go uh, a couple of years 
back in the past. Uh, I remember that I was uh, working at Imperial College in the group of uh, Chris Dumazu. Uh, that was immediately after I finished my PhD. Uh, and um, I had access to a, a really nice clean room at Imperial that I've actually helped to put together. And interestingly, uh, your PhD was in defect engineering. It wasn't so much in biomedical engineering or in any aspects of what you're doing. Absolutely. So, so tell us a bit more about how you transitioned from that into Chris's group at Imperial. Yes. So uh, as with any PhD student, I also uh, uh, shopped around a little bit. So I, I, I started looking at different areas that I wanted to develop and, and ended up doing my PhD in defect engineering and, and controlling defects at the nanoscale so that we can actually develop uh, more efficient antennas, more efficient filters, this type of uh, research. But in order to do that, again, I had to learn how to use these uh, tools that would allow me to prototype devices at the nanoscale. This is kind of how I've met also with, uh, with Chris Tumazu at Imperial College, who, who took me on board on, on his group in the Center of uh, Bio-Inspired Technologies. Uh, and uh, the reason I, he, he sort of brought me on board was because I was coming more from the prototyping, from the device engineering perspective. And Chris... Uh, for those who, do, who don't know, he's, he's a true entrepreneur. Recently, he is, uh, he's been all over the news because he's providing these 90-minute uh, COVID uh, tests through his companies. Uh, and uh, and I, I kind of went, was tasked with, it, with, the, um, with the research objective to look at how we can develop more efficient and better, higher sensitivity uh, biosensors. And Chris has a long history of working with people, both clinicians as well as physiologists at Imperial, dating all the way back to the 70s, if I can say it, because some of his earlier papers that I've read uh, with his papers with Stephen Bloom, etc., are probably uh, when you and I were both kind of kids in school and, and he has kind of published some remarkable play papers at those times. And he still is continuing to go strong and he's doing really, really well. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, Chris has been one of the fantastic visionaries of, you know, and engineers, uh, and we're really lucky to have him in, in the UK. Uh, he really likes to think big, right? Uh, but at that environment that uh, I was part of at Imperial, uh, I came across a few other people. So we had medics, we had engineers, we had uh, chemists within the, uh, within Imperial. And, and I remember one day, um, Professor Sir Magdi Yacoub, who who is a very well known, very well respected heart, heart surgeon, um, uh, sort of stop, stopping me at the corridor and say, "You are doing something by making small things right. So, so uh, maybe you can help me with a problem that I have, which is I would like to grow cells in very specific locations and in very specific orientations." And and my response to that to that was, "Right, so." Let's do that. It's, it's it's quite easy. We can develop these scaffolds. For, and, and really for the listener's benefit, Dr. Magdi Yacoub is one of the most premier surgeons in the world who worked extensively on, if you Google left ventricular assist devices, Dr. Magdi Yacoub was the pioneer of left ventricular assist devices using an end-stage heart failure patients prior to transplantation. So he studied the whole deal about how to implant them, what the mechanisms was of 
of how the heart adapts to as a supportive care to prevent people from dying due to end-stage heart failure. And th- that is the environment. And he was a person that actually came to you uh, and kind of said, we want systems to grow cells in that we could ultimately study heart failure and mechanisms of LVAT. The, the, there's, actually, it, there's actually a really funny story behind this because um, uh, I've, been, I've been in the UK for a very long time. And uh, at that time, I, I didn't really know the full extent of of uh, of Magdi's right, and uh, Magdi, as you you, you know, Irony, he's a, a really modest person, uh, and uh, I remember that I was running because uh, I was a little bit late for my meeting with him to just get over coffee, discuss how we're gonna grow these cells, how we're gonna do this, how we're gonna develop this, and I was talking to my uh, my family back in Greece, who um, was telling them I was I was rushing off to to a meeting that was already late with with this heart surgeon when his name was Magdi and and they knew about him and 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 I felt really embarrassed because um uh, apparently he is a, he is a, he still is a superstar back in Greece because he uh, many years ago he operated uh, on on one of our prime ministers uh, but apparently I didn't know about this so that completely changed my perspective about Magdi after after that phone call obviously yeah I I really ran to the meeting immediately <laughs> Well, and, and what's funny is the only reason I know anything about an LVAD and, and people outside of the realm of science and engineering, um, if they've heard of an, of an LVAD, chances are it came from Gray's Anatomy when Izzy cut the LVAD wires on her boyfriend. I mean, that's, Correct. but it's, it's, you know, pop culture has a circle and it comes back to science. Uh, exactly. Apparently. Exactly. So that, that's kind of how, if you like, I started in that area. So I went from doing defect engineering and control of nano nano defects in uh, uh, for uh, uh, for RF and microwave devices, all the way to doing biosensors and and then doing cell culturing platforms and and uh, you know biomimetic cell culturing platforms that then were very useful for uh, as a, a drug toxicity monitors. Uh, and that's kind of how we also got to know each other through your involvement with GSK at that moment. So yeah. that, that was, if you like, the uh, you know how I went from the, the world of nanotechnology into the world of uh, nanobiotechnology in, in a way. And uh, and during that time, there was a lot of uh, discussion about the. The bioelectronics medicine, obviously, in, in which you, you had a, a huge role in, in shaping this policy. And I, I, again, I remember this, this is a fantastic, uh, a very, very exciting challenge. Uh, this, these guys, they're, they're really nuts by the considering of, uh, of doing what, you know, you wanted to do back then. But I've been called many worse things than that, Demis. Thank you. But I think it's a compliment. Take it as a compliment, because uh, uh, again, as, as I said, I really enjoy these these challenges, and that's how um, uh, I remember those uh, long hours that we put in in uh, in the New York summit that you organized in trying to sort of develop the the landscape of bioelectronic medicines. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? Why does it worth doing this? What do we need to do? And uh, and and and. So many fantastic ideas came out of that summit. I think that this has been one of the most uh, uh, inspiring workshops that I've ever attended uh, in my career. Uh, and that's kind of how, if you like, got involved with 
neural interfaces, which also the cell culturing in a way that, uh, you know, on one side there was the need to develop the, uh, the scaffolds for growing the cells. But once you have the cells, and specifically we were looking at uh, uh, emulating arrhythmias on a chip then with, uh, with Cesare Terraziano from Imperial College and a few other good colleagues, uh, but you also need to have a, a monitoring platform integrated into that. So that's already making, you know, like getting into a, a transition into the neural interfaces, if you like, for uh, in vitro uh, applications. And uh, immediately then the need then was apparent of uh, what do you do if you want to do that at, at really large scale? So they, the, there's no problem, obviously, in, in uh, using the same tools that I've been using for scaling the electrodes, making them smaller, increasing substantially the density, but it's, it becomes a different problem. It becomes a problem of power consumption. It becomes a, a, a problem of data handling, essentially. So you have big data, uh, a, a big data problem that needs to be processed there and there. Yeah, and which is what led you from making um, or enabling technologies uh, for cell culture and for drug screening, etc. Uh, which, again, I'm actually proud to say that that ours was the first paper that actually validated the compounds using um, immature stem cells and maturing them. And I think I kind of presented it to the FDA um, back in the day when FDA was first considering that and. That was one of the big reasons why they enabled a big workshop and a working group that is still currently running in that space to to enable drug screening for cardiac toxicity. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why you kind of moved on and the inspiration from those cell culture enabling technologies to neural technologies came from the fact that you saw the opportunity that this was actually going to become a data problem and this was going to be impeded by the current technologies that were available at the time, and this probably still what most people use, which is the semiconductor uh, or, or CMOS-based technologies. And tell us a bit more about what th that it is that you did or how you thought of the problem and what kind of solution at a high level. And we'll drill a bit more deeper in, in a, just a second, Themis. Uh, absolutely. So, so when when I hit that uh, uh, sort of bottleneck, then uh, immediately my mind went, "But hang on a minute. I mean, how is biology doing it?" And that's where sort of the uh, uh, it was, if you like, a, a nice eureka moment for me because you know immediately I went to, to seek inspiration from uh, biological processes. Uh, look, for example, how the the, the human retina operates, you know, like you have a deluge of data coming at you. Uh, the optical nerve is, is, let alone, is not capable of, in communicating all of this information, you know, like for further processing into the brain. So how, how is it really doing it? It's, it's actually doing processing at the edge, processing exactly at the, at the place where all of this data is, uh, is picked up. Uh, and, and you only send only the important information further down the line. So that, that was uh, obviously was not something that um, I was not the only one working in this. There is uh, uh, something else that is fascinating in the world of engineering is that there is a bunch of other, other either academics or companies 
uh, all sort of racing each other on who's going to get there first. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of inspiration was um, a, a lot of, if you like, of uh, motivation through that, uh, uh, through that uh, nice competition. But the the unique approach that uh, I took back then was that um, it's uh, I, I took a very um, important decision where I said it's impossible to do this with. Uh, commercially available technologies. Uh, and even if we are able to do it nowadays, soon we won't be able to serve the needs of modern societies. Because on one side, uh, you know, the 7 billion transistors that I mentioned previously that we have on our iPhone, uh, they become 7.5, they become 9 billion transistors simply by cramming more of those devices, more of those switches per unit area. Uh, and, and in order to achieve this, you need to make those devices smaller and smaller. And this is known as Moore's scaling law, which basically for the past 70 years, the microelectronics industry has been riding uh, its uh, progress on that wave. Um, uh, however, we've reached the point where we uh, have devices that are only a few atoms wide and, and there's not really much that we can do about this. Uh, and, uh, there are still tricks we can do there, but however, the cost rises exponentially. So then it becomes also uh, a cost performance uh, question. So that was the, the moment where I, I came across a, another fantastic mentor uh, in my career, a, a really visionary, a very, very different pe- person from Chris Dumazu, a, a very academic-oriented person, Professor Leon Chua, at uh, UC Berkeley, who um, is uh, is very well known for his work in uh, in nonlinear circuits and, and neural artificial neural networks, and also is known for uh, uh, developing the theoretical uh, concept of memory stores, uh, or in short, memory 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 resistors, which are two terminal devices that have very unconventional characteristics to the typical switches that we use in our conventional electronics transistors. Uh, and uh, and I was really, really lucky to, to come across him because uh, I got a fellowship at that point to go and work with him at Berkeley for a year as a visiting fellow in, in his group. And, uh, and Leon is very, very deep and thorough. He is, uh, I, I dare to say publicly, is perhaps one of the. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, next week, when the Nobel prizes uh, are announced, he is among the uh, laureates that are announced. is is really really thorough, very very deep thinker. Uh, but he's also a, a, a person that is is giving everything to the the people he's working with. So that that was really fantastic. Uh, period, if you like, in my career, fantastic inspiration to to be able to see and collaborate and play in that league. So, w- what what memories are just for the? Because um, I'm I'm throwing at you some technical terms, and uh, uh, and I know that uh, our friends that are listening will be interested in knowing a little bit more about this. So, there, essentially, there are two terminal devices, two terminal switches that uh, change the resistance. Uh, Based on uh, on how much charge has actually flown through them, so if if I can put it in an analogy, it's like you have a a, a tube, uh, and through that tube you're passing water, and the more water you pass, 
the larger the diameter of the tube becomes, so it's easier to pass the water. And if you reverse the uh, the, the polarity, the way that you're passing the water through, it, it actually contracts and it makes it makes it more difficult. So it increases the resistance. It makes it more difficult for the for the uh, water to flow, i.e., the charge to flow through. Now, why is this important? Uh, this is important for a couple of reasons. First, first of all, it's uh, it's allowing you when you stop passing water through. It's, let's go with the analogy of water. Your uh, device remembers the state that it was before the water stopped, so it stores it in a non-volatile way, which is really great because imagine you have a computer and all the memory is uh, dependent on this type of uh, memory devices. When you switch it off uh, and then you open it up, open your screen again, everything immediately will come back as it was, and, and it would consume minimum, almost zero energy. So it's extremely energy efficient, but at the same time, it's not only able to store zeros and ones, as the standard transistors that allow us to do in, in the digital sort of era, but it allows us to store many, many memory states per single device. So you have all of these discernible memory states that you can store, uh, so you know you pass a little bit more current, a little bit more, and a little bit more, and 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 that has a truly analog uh, sort of character. It's a truly analog uh, memory characteristic, uh, which again resembles very very nicely the um, the memory mechanisms that are transcribed in the in the chemical synapses linking our neurons. So it's something that is actually. Uh, coincidentally, is also at the same, almost the same scale with with chemical synapses, which, uh, uh, if you start thinking uh, about scaling upwards these systems, and you use this as a fundamental building, I like to say Lego block for developing new electronic systems that are able to be intelligent and interact with their environment, uh, you could take inspiration from from the human brain. But in order to mimic the complexity of the human brain, you need to have very efficient primitive components to start with. And that's what memristors were actually be, were game-changing in that area because it allowed us to, to uh, provide more for less. And when I say more, it's more functionality. Uh, uh, so I've mentioned these multiple states that you can store per device. Uh, you can do that a lot quicker by conventional electronics, but also you can do that for less, less energy consumption and less space, which also allows you to scale it upwards. So you you came to your approach or your um, solution to the collapse of more scaling law as it pertains mostly to neural interfaces, but this clearly has applications far beyond bioelectronic medicine. What are some of the applications that are most exciting and probably most accessible near term for this technology? Absolutely. So the, the very first thing that obviously everyone is interested in that is in using this as a next generation memory storage. Because, you know, we, we, we live in a in an era that uh, we are producing so much data that has been uh, in fact anticipated that by 2025 we will be consuming uh, at least a fifth of, of global energy consumption simply for handling the data that we produce. This data needs to be stored somewhere. Okay, so uh, so it has 
manifold benefits in a way. On, on one side, uh, every little helps. So you can do the same type of processing, but uh, uh, at a, a much lower um, energy consumption. So it's a more environmental friendly and sustainable technology in the longer term. Uh, secondly, you can actually cram more functionality into this. So the very, very first step, which is the obvious one, let's replace conventional memory technologies with this more advanced memory technology. Then the next sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, level of intervention is because you have all this multitude of states that, so you can tune, you can reconfigure this device to, to, uh, to take all these different states. Uh, it, it means that you can also use it uh, to reconfigure the functionality of any system. So we were familiar with uh, uh, FPGAs that we typically use with, you know, and we, we can actually reconfigure them and develop very, very flexible sort of uh, systems overall. But having something that uh, is able to be reconfigured in a truly analog way, uh, it's, it's truly fascinating. Uh, and bear in mind that uh, we live in a world that all the signals that everything that surrounds us, surround us actually does require analog processing. We don't smell, see, listen with a, a standard, you know, fixed bit precision. We don't do that in a digital fashion. We're continuously processing analog signals. And this is really one of the differentiating factors I've mentioned previously, that uh, uh, modern computing architectures actually suffer from. The, one of the other unique points for MemResource is that it allows to collocate memory and computing. So I've mentioned the analogy of passing water through this. And as the water goes through, that's, that's your information, you're changing in real time the diameter of the tube, the resistance of your memory store, which means that you're also storing the outcome of your computation there. Now, this is fundamentally very, very different to the von Neumann computing architecture, which uh, relies on having a, a storage medium you go your hard disk, you go and you fetch some data, you bring it to the processing unit, you do something with it, and then you send the results back and you store it there. All this back and forth is costing us in energy, but importantly also is costing us on, uh, uh, on uh, delays, right? So uh, that immediately limits the type of applications, especially if you want to do, think of an autonomous vehicle, of a Tesla driving, you know, uh, on, on High Street, and all of a sudden, you know, there is a pedestrian uh, uh, crossing the road, and you need to have a decision immediately for for uh, avoiding hitting this person, right? You cannot really afford to have electronics that we have, you know, like a huge latencies. And, and to a, a broader extent here, because we're talking about uh, artificial intelligence, and this is why this is so... Um, uh, great for developing these technologies as, as the hardware solution, uh, it could allow us to bring computation from the cloud to the edge. Now, by doing that, again, you have other application opportunities that, uh, uh, that one can actually think of because, uh, first of all, you can have real-time processing, uh, in the case of bioelectronic medicines that uh, uh, your audience uh, are, are interested, you can do uh, in vivo and in implantable uh, devices, you can perform real processing of your biosignals. You don't need to uh, rely on uh, storing this somewhere or sending this 
via a, a high bandwidth link uh, to uh, somewhere ex externally, you know, like to uh, either a supercomputer or, or uh, to the cloud for further processing. And because you don't do that, immediately your solution is more secure. Obviously, if you don't want to be hacked, the, the best thing you can actually do is remain off the network. So it brings other opportunities, if you like, for applications. Yeah. So, so when I buy my next car, am I going to have this technology baked in? How how far out are we on this? We're actually, it's, although it started, I've mentioned previously about Nobel Prizes. They haven't really awarded a Nobel Prize in this area yet, uh, as opposed to graphene. But nonetheless, application-wise, is a lot more developed than graphene. So uh, uh, as an example, the 3DX point solutions that Intel is, uh, is producing for the servers is based on this type of devices. So the, the change is here. This, this has already happened now. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I do take a lot of pride also in my group's work for contributing in, in making this a possibility. Because if, I, if when I look 10 years back, uh, the yield, you know, like, I mean, we were making a million devices and, and you, you would only get a handful of those devices doing something exciting, which for academia, it, it could be okay. You can still go and write your nature paper and get your promotion, right? But uh, it's not something that um, you could reliably exploit into critical applications like the ones that we're discussing. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. So, which is a good segue to actually how you've built the infrastructure. So, I think thanks so much for explaining in in reasonably simple terms as to what the concept of a memristor is and the ability to do kind of on-chip computing and real-time data analysis, uh, enabling machine learning and artificial intelligence, et cetera, and the fact that that step change is actually happening right now with, with some of the uh, the chip makers. Uh, the example that you quoted there was Intel, but there's more, many more others. Um, I think one of the key things that that would be good to explore from your perspective uh, in uh, is what materials go into making these these memristors or, or memory resistors. How do they actually have? So what you described there, Temis, is more what looks like a hysteresis loop of, of how kind of information kind of goes up and comes back down. And then uh, going back to the water analogy that you kind of quoted. So what enables, what is different about the materials in the, in the memristors that make this happen? And where is, where is where are the sections where your group is kind of innovated in terms of providing this? And then the next step that I want to also ask you to kind of share with the uh, with us and with, and the listeners is how you have enabled uh, and in building some of the infrastructure that you have at University of Southampton um, in terms of making this to be more reliable more accessible and making it widely available to the to the research community and beyond that sure there's a lot of questions uh, so starting from materials, uh, this is something that is uh, truly fundamental as a mechanism. 
So it, it happens in, in everything that we have in nature, right? Uh, and, and I've seen some really funny demonstrations, even with people putting a, a couple of electrodes across their, their uh, hand and measuring this hysteresis, this uh, memory effect. Um, in fact, I've, uh, I've, I've written a commentary in Nature Materials a few years ago uh, where where I was arguing that uh, this this uh, this whole area is actually as old as uh, two centuries when Sir Humphrey Davy was was working with uh, putting a couple of carbon electrodes in good proximity and using Volta's pile uh, and he was observing discharge and he was observing exactly the same signature characteristics these uh, hysteresis characteristics that you mentioned. Uh, What's different there? So, so why should we care now? And Humphrey uh, Davy, who was the head of the Royal Academy of Engineering, um, he, he was the director of the Royal Institution in the 1800s. Uh, Sir yeah. Humphrey Davy, uh, a fantastic engineer, and he was uh, he he's uh, an innovator. He's been he's been known for many many different things, uh, amongst which the uh, innovation of the electric arc. He was the very first to develop artificially made light, uh, but uh, I, I believe that he he remained in history because he was also the supervisor of Faraday. So uh, that that's a, a, another interesting story that maybe we can we can discuss a, a different time. But um, in any case, coming back to the materials, if you look at the periodic table, almost every single element in the periodic table can be used to enable this type of devices and this type of characteristics. Um, where my my group and other colleagues uh, have actually focused on, and I think this is this is why um, uh, we were able, if you like, to to develop a, a number of different innovations based on this, is that we focused entirely on materials that we are already utilizing in electronic technologies, in CMOS technologies. So metal oxide materials that we're using for high K dielectrics, because we're not at the point where we could simply scrap seven decades of innovation in semiconductor technologies and CMOS technologies, right? And we've, which, which have actually had multi-trillion investments of the, over the many years. And, uh, and, uh, and we cannot change the perspective of the designers from one day to the other. So all of that, there is lagging into the system. All that happens over time. So our approach has been uh, specifically via a project that's been funded from the uh, EPSRC in the UK. It's a, a program grant called Forte, uh, which is looking at exploiting functional oxides for developing reconfigurable technologies for electronics. And uh, and we're we're develop we're using the same palette of materials that our colleagues that are doing CMOS technologies are using, which makes it makes the whole thing very interoperable, our processes compatible with the processes that CMOS engineers are using. And therefore, we can take CMOS wafers as the uh, support infrastructure and start building our, our emerging technologies atop of this infrastructure. So you need a little bit of, of the, the best of the both worlds, in a way. Yeah. You mentioned about the... The, the infrastructure uh, at Southampton. I mean, one of the nice things that we, we do have at Southampton is a, is a fantastic uh, clean room facility, which, is, uh, uh, which actually allows us to do all the 
prototyping and processing at uh, large scale. When I say large scale at uh, uh, eight inch wafers, which is uh, uh, also compatible with what industry is doing at the moment. So that that's quite uh, quite handy because we're getting all of the um, uh, standard CMO stuff developed via foundries in the Far East, like TSMC, for example. Uh, we get this all shipped at Southampton, and then we continue with the process, where otherwise we'll have to do that. The challenges of integration is uh, are very, very different. Uh, but you also picked up on a on a something else that's very, very close to my heart, and I think it kind of gave us, uh, um, if you like, the heads up with other research groups, because we, we recognized from early on the need to be able to characterize uh, thousands and millions of devices in parallel. And because of that, we invested heavily in my group in developing bespoke testing instruments that allowed, allows us actually to test thousands of those devices, but at the click of a button within a minute. Uh, and the moment we we went through a lot of different iterations there, and, uh, and once uh, I, I recall that I was sitting with one of my ex-PhD students who is now working in Toshiba, and he was uh, leading this work there. And we said, uh, we wish we had this instrument a few years ago. We would have done so much better. And that was the moment, the Eureka moment, where we said, so perhaps all the other groups would be interested in, in accessing this uh, instruments and this uh, infrastructure and this capability and we we established a startup company called the arc instruments which uh, stands for uh, array control instruments in fact we did it with uh, absolutely zero investment from external sources we we just did it on our, on our own and uh, and uh, that was 5 years ago and and today arc instruments is exporting these solutions into over 20 countries worldwide we have the likes of IBM, Toshiba, Huawei using our instruments in, into their R&D practices. Uh, and that, that's something as, as an engineer that um, uh, I, I take huge pride because it's, uh, it's, it's one thing to do something within a very academic perspective, but it's a very, very different thing to ask, you know, what, what does your uh, users and what, what do your customers actually want? Uh, so that, that's a nice, if you like, story that's really helped us to uh, to push the frontiers of development with these technologies further, um, and uh, and establish a number of different applications and demonstrate a number of different applications that no one was able to demonstrate before. Uh, in fact, earlier this year, uh, we we went all the way from artificial intelligence coming back into smart neural neural interfaces. And we published a, a paper in Nature Scientific Reports uh, in, in March uh, earlier this year, where for the first time we demonstrated that we can actually link uh, artificial neurons with real neurons uh, bidirectionally in real time. And in fact, we did that uh, also uh, through this infrastructure that we put in place. We did it over the web. Which was uh, quite handy, particularly for the uh, this current lockdown uh, because of the COVID pandemic. We were able to to work from home and and uh, get real with artificial neurons to communicate and talk over the web. It, it was really really good fun. That might be the first example where people 
um, had actually shut down labs uh, and only had a, a limited occupancy of the laboratory. So I think that's probably the first example that I've heard uh, in the area where you've been able to still carry on work uh, remotely, uh, specifically catered to what you were doing in the in terms of your primary research aims. That's fantastic. I actually remember that. Which is also why the, the, the company the company actually also saw an increase in, into our sales this year simply because people realize that, uh, you know, with a, a little bit of investment, they can actually get their hands into uh, into this uh, instrument and they can equip their, their research groups to work from home, which was a really, really very, very niche, obviously, uh, market. But it was it was quite, quite nice to see that we were able to allow these people to continue with the research. I, I remember when that paper came out, I was really excited about it. Even as a lay person, I, I could see the potential and the importance of what was happening there. And it was actually probably that posting. Um, I think I, I posted it and then Arun and I were, were chatting back and forth on LinkedIn at the same time, Famous, you and I were chatting on LinkedIn. And then we discovered that the three of us were going back and forth over this story and about the commonalities there. So it, it in part, that story is is uh, responsible for bringing Arun and me together on this project. Um, but I want to step back to, to ARC Instruments for just a second. Would you consider yourself an accidental engineer or, I'm sorry, an accidental entrepreneur? Is this what Bob Ross would kind of say, a, a happy accident? Or was entrepreneurship uh, a deliberate decision all along? Uh, I don't think anyone wakes up and says, today I'm going to innovate. Today I'm going to be an entrepreneur, right? Uh, I think this is something that naturally happens to people. Uh, and and uh, I, I don't really like to, to put labels on people that, you know, this guy is an entrepreneur, this guy is an academic. Uh, uh, I feel that, you know, if you're just uh, curiosity-driven, you, you, you know, you go with the, with the flow of your research and you, you get on with the research and you do the development that you need to do, uh, at some point you actually might end up come across something that could be particularly useful for others. And I think uh, there are great examples in, in um, uh, amongst a number of very established and distinguished engineers that they accidentally come across something and initially, they were targeting some other innovation, something else, and uh, and uh, they realized that what they've developed is actually good for a number of other uh, application areas. So I, I don't really like to call myself entrepreneur or or academic on the other side. Uh, I'm happy with the title of the engineer. That's actually very good, uh, Temis. I think that's also a very excellent segue into the other application uh, of memristors that that you are kind of working on as well uh, so, so tell us a bit more about where your laboratory is going uh, in southampton where the center is is going um with with the next steps and also where the next entrepreneurial journey is going to take you as well in terms of discovery and and moving that forward yes yeah, so the I was I was quite uh, delighted to receive first of all a, a additional support to engage into my next sort of uh, uh, 
stage in my career. And this came uh, through a prestigious award from the Royal Academy of Engineering. So I received one of these uh, uh, fantastic uh, awards to have, uh, which is a 10-year support in uh, allowing me the flexibility to do uh, to realize my vision for AI hardware based on these memory store technologies that I've developed previously. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a chair in emerging technologies, essentially. Um, so where we're getting with that is in, uh, in taking these mature now technologies that we've developed and the tool sets that we've developed and trying to develop specific uh, applications uh, that would be useful for uh, uh, for processing data at large scale at the edge, so signal uh, processing units at the edge at the device level, classifiers, uh, looking at advanced memory solutions for continuously on systems, uh, because especially for embedded type of applications where you don't have the ability to either send data in and out and uh, or you don't want to lose the data as well by just simply erasing the data, uh, you need to come up with a different solution to do that. Uh, and also a, a new exciting area for us, which is uh, looking at how we can actually do um, uh, processing of this data, but not via statistical uh, uh, methods as uh, typically is is utilized in, in established sort of architectures via deep learning networks, etc. But looking at doing symbolic level processing. Uh, if if I was to give you an example, we are we are very good. If I was to ask you uh, what is the uh, what is the dollar sign of the UK? Right. If I was to ask this question into into a computer, you know, I will get like a a, a blue screen kind of response. Uh, but uh, immediately your mindset goes into he must be referring to the the British pound. Yorkshire man for the answer because they would tell you that it's not a dollar. But anyway, in very colorful language, Themis. Uh, but yes. <laughs> uh, so, so so being able to do uh, uh, processing of symbols. Rather, uh, uh, in uh, it's extremely useful, especially when you have data that seemingly come across as being un- uncorrelated, and that's I think something that uh, brings us a step closer to uh, both true intelligence in machines, but also uh, a, a more transparent and more ethical AI, because uh, we can use the same approaches for interrogating intelligent systems and adaptive systems. When something goes wrong, for example, we've mentioned exa- we've mentioned previously the the example of of a Tesla, right? What happens if there is a if an autonomous vehicle, you know, uh, is involved in a car accident? Whose fault is it? Uh, who's going to take the blame? Who's going to take the liability? There are some really interesting questions behind behind all of this, and of course behind the ethics of this. Uh, we, and because we've been looking also at uh, implantable and uh, in vivo and in vitro applications of these technologies, that that raises even more the ethical concerns. Uh, we've mentioned previously the work that we've done where we linked uh, uh, real with artificial neurons. What was really exciting about this work is is that it it it, it was a breakthrough in in the sense that it was the very very first piece of work to demonstrate that this is possible, uh, and therefore if you have AI chips on one side, perhaps you can use it for replacing 
damaged parts of the brain in in a case where someone is suffering from Alzheimer's, and 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 if if you um, I, I dare to say uh, and to sort of uh, uh, tease you a little bit, uh, maybe go for super intelligence. All of us uh, could benefit from a, a little upgrade. Who knows? Yeah, the, actually, the the guest we we recently had on Sandy Greenberg said something that I think captures my personal perspective on the ethical application of of some of these technologies, which is maybe we don't strive to lengthen life, but to improve quality of life during our natural state of living. Um, But I think that also what you're doing, this is all sort of following, falling under the Sonnet umbrella. Is that correct? Your, your company Sonnet. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Sonnet's doing and and um, how it all came about? Yes. So uh, again, this was not a, a an attempt for myself to to behave as an entrepreneur. It was uh, something that we were doing on. We we've been developing these uh, full systems that uh, allow us to do real time processing uh, of uh, rich data sets uh, at the edge with constrained resources and. Uh, but- we felt, we felt. Just want to say this. I think you you are not doing it, but we will possibly put this forward. If there are anybody who is listening, the part that got uh, me excited, and especially also Jojo as well, when we first heard of Sonnet and what the company was actually going to do, is about the limitless possibilities as to how memristors could actually be applied. And in ways that could actually have an impact on our daily life beyond just medical applications. So I think if there's anybody out there listening who probably has a, a, a few thousand dollars or a few million dollars willing to and they want to invest, this is definitely one of the options that you should be looking at. And that is my humble kind of request to all of you. So with that, then, if you're not doing the marketing. I'm doing the marketing for you. But but go ahead. It's not humble, though, because Arun, you and I are taking a piece. Fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll sort out a deal later on. So you're absolutely right, Arun, and thank, thanks for bringing this up, because really we're looking at diversifying the use of these emerging technologies for making things that we, we routinely do much simpler and much better. So with much less power, as I said, every little helps. If, if you're able, uh, uh, imagine running again Siri on your smartphone, right, but don't have to charge your phone uh, every single day because it, it, it draws so much actually uh, power from your battery. Imagine being able to do that without, uh, when you are abroad, let's say you're traveling into China and you need to do uh, to use your iTranslate application, uh, for uh, translating in real time uh, uh, from English to Chinese or whatever other language you wish to use, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if you were able to do that without utilizing the cloud and without uh, actually compromising your your safety and your security and your privacy uh, and without using uh, without using your roaming? So there is there is many unexpected application areas there uh, that that we are targeting through Sonnet. The, uh, the, the beauty of our approach is that the chipsets that we are developing based on memory technologies and artificial neural networks are, are very versatile. 
and uh, and they can be utilized for addressing. In the end of the day, it's all data. So uh, having very efficient classifiers and classification systems allows us to process in real time biosignals, spiking uh, uh, spiking events, doing spike detection or spike sorting in in situ, uh, but also it allows us to to recognize different syllables and it allows to do to do natural language processing or image processing if needed. So the possibilities are really endless. Uh, our our motto, our vision is really utilize this technology for embed intelligence everywhere. So just one follow-up question to that, Demis, and I'm sure this is something that you and I have have spoken of um, offline, but that also, I think, a question that most people who have a bit more knowledge in the area would probably ask you. I think there are quite a few number of semiconductor companies that are utilizing CMOS technologies that are also doing a lot of artificial intelligence-based chips etc. How is the Sonet.ai chips going to be better than what's currently being explored or what is currently being developed? Um, We can take examples of companies, but we'll stay away from that just to kind of... Can you provide a differentiation argument uh, there for Sonet.ai? Absolutely. It's uh, the, the key differentiator for us is that we're using a very different fabric for our electronics. Uh, I've mentioned previously the challenges that people are facing with, and there is some fantastic innovation from a number of different companies that are doing neuromorphic chipsets based on CMOS and very advanced CMOS technological nodes. However, this is not sustainable progress because very, very soon, when the Moore's uh, uh, law uh, actually comes to an end, uh, they will be completely surpassed by other technologies. And all of that innovation, you know, would, would, would actually become obsolete. So our, our approach is that we're starting from something that uh, already gives us an advantage. So, for example, in the uh, we've demonstrated that you can do uh, spike detection uh, at, at a single channel level. We can do at least two to three orders of magnitude less power. Okay, so uh, that is immediately something that you can put into an implantable device that will consume your your coin battery uh, in at a smaller pace, or you can utilize that for scaling upwards and being able to realize perhaps uh, Elon Musk's vision for having you know multi million uh, uh, recording sites on these uh, neural interfaces. So in, in both cases, is something that's extremely useful and, and, and can be done simply because you're starting from a technology that is not saturated. The, the specs are, are, are just ahead of us to enable us to develop much more lower and more power consumption chipsets and more efficient, computationally efficient chipset solutions. So that's really the differentiating factor. Uh, and, and the beauty of that is that if I put my academic hat on now, through this fantastic support that we had over over the years from EPSRC, from the Royal Society, uh, and and also most recently from the Royal Academy of Engineering, we have de-risked all of these uh, uh, highly disruptive ideas. Which are you know, with disruption, you also have to uh, take on board and be able to accept a higher risk. 
So we have already done the de-risking, and I think this is this is why um, it's it's a safe bet for us. Mm-hmm. I think uh, along with the de-risking is is also um, the the derision that you might experience from competitors or people who are set in their ways who have made significant investors investments in in competing technologies that are about to be obsolete. Um, getting them to come around and and to face the music is can be a tough challenge. So but, I mentioned previously when you were asking me about that, what type of materials people are using for memory stores, etc. One of the unique uh, strategies that we have uh, uh, we have utilized here is that we we are technology agnostic. Although my group is developing some preferred, let's say, materials flavors, okay, some flavors of memory stores, which we feel you know could potentially be the ones that TSMC will be adopting in the commercially available technologies. All of our patents, all of our innovations work, work across unilaterally across with other other memory store technologies that other laboratories are utilizing. So that's, if you like, a unique uh, approach that we're taking where we, we are technology agnostic and our IP is on the different designs that we have established. I'm going to bring you back over to my side a little bit. I, you, know, you and Arun are science and technology. I'm, I'm sort of more on the humanities spectrum. So um, I understand you have a love of history, and I'd like to ask you for a history lesson um, about Sir Humphrey Davy, and maybe you could tell us about the the 200 years of memoristers and and the link to Napoleon. Oh yes, which I should say is a fantastic review that Temis actually mentioned, and we will include that that copy of that paper in the resources section, as well as the the link to the ARC Instruments website, etc. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, this will be a fantastic uh, lesson for people who actually don't know some of this information, Temis. Sure. So uh, I mentioned previously, you know, because we talk about infrastructure and the opportunities and the challenges, uh, Sir Humphrey Davy was really the lucky engineer, the lucky person to be around uh, at the time where Volta has just discovered the voltaic pile. So Volta discovered the voltaic pile just before 1800s. And, uh, and uh, in, already in 1801, uh, Humphrey Davy had access to uh, loads of voltaic piles. And he started stacking them in series and in parallel to see, you know, what's going to happen. And when he realized that if he, if he puts them in series, he creates really large potentials. And he were, was able to actually demonstrate three fundamental uh, uh, discoveries. First of all, the electric arc, which I've mentioned previously, discharge, so the very first artificially made uh, light. Uh, secondly, electrolysis. And because of the uh, uh, electrolysis, he was the very first to be able to isolate potassium and sodium. And the, and the next year, he actually has done a plethora of other materials. Uh, and third, which relates to bioelectronic medicines, and we, we didn't, uh, I don't think if I've mentioned this to Aaron before, he was the very first to demonstrate the, he was one of the very first to demonstrate the galvanic effect. So by having those electrodes and those, you know, linked into the voltaic piles, he was able to show that he could stimulate the, dead, the, the legs of a dead frog. Now, because all of these discoveries, uh, which I became aware of from letters that he was writing to his mother, 
uh, a, a little bit of fun story there. Like spending a lot of time at the British Library trying to f- go through the archives. Uh, we, I actually came across a few other archives w- which uh, uh, highlighted the uh, appreciation that Napoleon, bear in mind that at that time England was in war uh, at war with France. But regardless of that, Napoleon was uh, quite excited about the scientific prospects of the discoveries of Sir Humphrey Davy. And what he did is he uh, he sent one of his secret agents with uh, with a, a stack of cash and uh, and a secret passport to allow him and his wife, Mrs. Davy, to travel in Paris to Paris and do a lecture on his work and and the the money that he actually provided napoleon provided was uh, to allow sir humphrey davy to to get a servant to help them with all the traveling arrangements so that that person that assistant was faraday and that's that's kind of how the link was was created of course what's interesting is is if you follow up with this faraday has done uh, amazing work, obviously, later on, and uh, 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 and a lot of his works, uh, especially with the, uh, uh, and the sulfides, uh, can actually be classified as being very, very relevant to, to memory stores. So it's, it's quite interesting to, uh, to see uh, in the history, because a lot of, uh, uh, quite often, a lot of the problems that we're trying to address in one domain has already been uh, dealt with in a different domain, so it's it's always quite nice to to be able to do that. So the moral of the story, then, Temis, is that no job is too small for even if you become a big guy some other time later on in life. Faraday was still Abs- the the absolutely student uh, to Humphrey Davy at the time. So and, and and I can argue, I always if when I give a, a presentation again to sort of. A, Students, I, I bring this example up and I ask the question, how many of you know who Sir Humphrey Davy is and how many of you know who Faraday is? And then I tell them the story. Yeah, this this actually jives quite nicely with a theme that we've had all along, which is um, the value of your network. So even in the early 19th century, um, science was a small family. And I think we see a lot of that today. So fostering and and growing your network and your personal connections, not just in the science and technology part of it, but making connections on the personal level um, really has has unforeseen impact on careers and and lives everywhere. So I think it's that's a great illustration of that. Um, So and and I think I I really appreciate, again, as the layperson of the bunch that um, you've been able to take some really complex ideas and applications. And I, like I said about the the um, artificial neuron connection earlier in our conversation, it's exciting. It's so exciting what you guys are doing. And I'm, I really appreciate you, you being on with us today. And I hope that um, we've inspired some people to take a look at, at ARC instruments and at Sonnet AI and into your work at your lab. Um, and I, I want to thank you for joining us. Well, the pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Jojo. Thank, this is really great to see both of you. And uh, uh, and I think this, these sessions are, are really exciting. I had the opportunity to, to listen to a few other uh, interviews that you've done. It's uh, I think we do need, especially in, in these difficult days that we're going through, 
some uh, uh, nice stories and celebrate some the successes and the failures of people because uh, research i can tell you is full of failures uh, we shouldn't just give up and we should just keep pressing ahead and and all of a, all of a sudden the uh, uh, the sun will shine yes and i like what you said earlier and i think we can all commit to living a curiosity driven life yeah thanks demis thank you so much for coming on appreciate it thank you thank you so much Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Music